You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Blood, serial killing, racism, orientalism, and a creepy incel stalker. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. It is said, wrote Henri Hein, that an English mechanic who had already invented the most ingenious machines thought fit to manufacture a man, and that he had succeeded. His hands could work and function like a man's. He wore in his leather chest a kind of human apparatus that could communicate his emotions. The bloody doll does not speak, but he writes, and with blood, and the internal noise of cogs, springs, and exhausts that we heard then produce the pronunciation. Finally, this automaton was an accomplished gentleman, and to make quite a man he only needed one soul. But this soul its creator could not give him, and the poor creature, having come to the consciousness of his imperfection, tormented his creator day and night, begging give him a soul. This prayer, which became more urgent every day, ended up becoming so unbearable to the poor artist that he took to flight to escape his masterpiece. The machine man took immediately to the chase, pursued him across the continent, did not stop running at his heels, sometimes grabbed him and growled in his ears, Give me a soul! Give me a soul! Gaston LaRue was a journalist and author. As a journalist, he covered the 1905 Russian Revolution and, uh, and wrote an in-depth investigation of the former Paris Opera, including the basement, which once held the prisoners of the infamous Paris Commune. He wrote several successful series of books, including the detective character, uh, forgive the pronunciation here, uh, Joseph uh, Rouletabille. Uh, <laughs> Joseph Rouletabille. Rouletabille. Who was apparently the basis for Tintin. Oh, interesting. Or at least that's, a, that's one theorized take on it. Hmm. He was like a, a short man with a big, or a short young man with a big head and solved mysteries. Hmm. Um, I don't know much about him beyond that. Anyway, um, and also the strong man Sherry Bibby. Um, his detective fiction was famous in France, and he's considered um, to have a career paralleled with Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Allan Poe. However, his most enduring work, by far, was 1907's Phantom of the Opera, which has since been adapted countless times and is one of the most recognizable brands out there. The book itself is, um, well, it's very pulpy, 
um, in both the good and bad senses of that word. Uh, but you can see why it, elements of it really caught on. Um, that said, we're not here to discuss The Phantom of the Opera. We're here to discuss Gaston Moreau's other novel about a creepy incel obsessing over a girl named Christine. Uh, hi, welcome to What Mad Universe, the podcast about pulp and the origins of pop culture. I'm Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, today we're discussing LaRoe's 1923 novels about an ugly man named Benedict Masson, uh, obsessed with the beautiful daughter of a watchmaker. He's eventually accused of being a serial killer due to the disappearances of several women in his life, and is executed. But the watchmaker and family put him in the body of a handsome mechanical man they call Gabriel. Oh, and there's a cult of vampires. Yeah, very normal. <laughs> the but <laughs> yes, um, uh, the bloody doll and its sequel, The Machine to Kill, are not widely known. In fact, there isn't a readily available English translation of the whole thing. Um, I learned about this book years ago. I was searching for um, just a character to fill an archetype for a comic. Uh, a uh, villain character with superhuman strength. I actually reached out to you and you suggested this. I'm not sure where you came across it. Yeah, actually, I don't remember either. Uh, for some reason... Yeah, th this was some years ago. Yeah, I think it was. I think you gave me the basic time period it needed to be set in, and so yeah. I looked up Gaston LaRue and I found out that this existed, basically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, anyway, um, so I was instantly intrigued because it's a story about a, well, at least the way it was sort of pitched is a serial killer's brain being implanted into the body of a robot. Um, yeah, that's not quite how it, how it turned out, but we'll discuss in a, that. In a way um, it is, but it's... In a yeah, way. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I couldn't find it, um, at least in English. Um, uh, years later, I discovered it available as an e-book under the title The Bloody Doll, uh, I instantly asked Adam if we could do an episode on it because I was really interested in reading this, uh, and I started it. Unfortunately, I was getting to the end, and uh, nothing seemed to be wrapping up plot-wise. Uh, there was still a lot of loose ends with one chapter to go, so I skipped ahead a bit and discovered that this was only part one of two. And that's not, a, that's not because the translator got lazy or anything. The original was two books, and I didn't know that. It's The Bloody Doll and The Machine to Kill. Um, and, uh, I, the local library, um, in Toronto has a copy of The Machine to Kill, not The Bloody Doll, but they have the second one, um, but it's only, it's an old copy, it's the original English translation from back in 1935 or whatever, um, and, uh, uh, but, yeah, because of that, it's only available in reference, and that's not, that service isn't open to the public at this time, because, we live in unprecedented, unprecedented times, times quote-unquote. Yeah. Um, so uh, I had read half a book, or half the story, basically, and I was kind of annoyed because I wanted to see what happened. Um, uh, so I did what, you know, the French version was online. I don't speak French, and that's a problem. But I've done this before. Yeah. I ran it through Google. I ran the whole book through Google Translate, and... Right. Read it that way. Yep. It's not, it's not a great way of reading a book, but you right. sort of get the broad strokes. Yeah, I speak a little French, so I picked a little bit of it, but it's a very 
laborious task to try and <laughs> translate it based yeah. on that. Um, so, yeah, so in a sense, we've read a somewhat mangled version of the second uh, book, which uh, that part that you that we read at the beginning was actually from the second book. So that was my attempt at a translation <laughs> of the... Uh, and my attempt to read through the translations yeah, of the that. second book. Uh, but yes. Yeah. So, um, like, let's uh, maybe... Okay, so let's see if we can hash out exactly what happens in this book um yes it's uh it is very framed very much uh as as i understand the phantom of the opera is i haven't actually read the book of the phantom of the opera uh i have so we can discuss well that. i understand that's that's done somewhat in a detective novel type of framework as well yes. um yeah he was a reporter so that sort of seems to be the way he wrote his books is like he's discovering the facts about a case yeah and and i know um, that one of his his first big book was called the mystery of the yellow room which is more or less the origin of the f classic locked room mystery yeah um and uh that that was one of the ones with that character's name i can't pronounce oh robotui <laughs> yeah and um yeah yeah so he was uh yeah apparently gaston larue he was a he was kind of a rich kid dilettante who turned to writing and well he turned to reporting yeah, he, he, writing he, yeah he actually um he got um I can't remember the exact amount, but he got like a, a million francs uh, yeah. inheritance and blew it all partying. <laughs> and then he had to take up reporting as a yeah. He was a yeah. He was a court clerk, I think, and then he became a reporter, yeah. and then he became a novelist. Uh, he worked for a yeah. uh, a conservative newspaper. Um, I didn't write it down. I'm sorry, it's called um, Le Poc. Le Poc. Okay, as in the um, the epic. It, it means <laughs> yeah. Or the era. um yeah um. Or the Epoch. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it was a conservative newspaper, uh, and it became pretty far right. While he was um, he wasn't reporting for there anymore, but he was publishing his stories there. Mm -hmm. um, after his death, it uh, became outright pro Hitler. Uh, so well, significantly, that's unfortunate. after his death, <laughs> yeah. he died in 1927. Well, so fortunately, he, yes, yes. Fortunately, but Western you know, Earth? it's the same newspaper, and it became pro Hitler during the occupation yeah. of Paris. And then, and then was yeah. shut down, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, so he wrote. Uh, he he became a pulp writer. He apparently, didn't think less of the pulp uh, genre at all. Like he just thought, oh, you know, he was into obviously mystery stories. Uh, I think I think uh, this whole genre was somewhat inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I mean, yep. uh, Arthur Conan Doyle as well, of course. But I think it, because Edgar Allan Poe wrote the uh, Auguste Dupin stories. I think that kind of fired up the French imagination to write uh, mysteries. Um, yeah. And uh, obviously that was, you know, several decades before this. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was kind of, you know, that was the mode of thought. And of course, that was very popular in Europe in the in the turn of the century, detective stories and mystery stories. Uh, so this whole thing is kind of framed as somewhat of a mystery. The second book in particular, a large chunk of it is just people sort of sitting around trying to uh, trying to assemble events of, of, of what happened <laughs> after the fact or somewhat after the fact um like there's literally a big chunk of it that's just all the neighbors gossiping about what they saw and what they've heard about this bloody doll which yeah it's interesting that they anyway well we'll get to this but in the first book um uh it's it's uh, the journal of benedict masson who uh what or most of it is yeah mo a, a, a solid chunk of it um, he's a watchmaker. He's he's sort of an ugly brute. Uh, no, no, he's not a watchmaker. Oh, sorry, the, the girl's father. He's, he's, he's a, a bookbinder. Book yeah, sorry. 
and and a poet. Yes, and a poet. And his uh, his uh, his neighbor is a watchmaker, uh, and his her his daughter Christine uh, is you know the subject of his amorous affections. Uh, and but he knows he can never have her because he's so ugly and because he keeps scaring women off. Uh, right there, Phil. Did <laughs> he he says he's had all these female assistants who all ran away and were never seen again. Was that yeah. meant to be some kind of like? Was he? Was he hiding the truth, or was there an explanation for that that I didn't quite catch? There, oh, there, there is. Um, it was the vampire cult. Oh, framing right, right, right. Okay, <laughs> right. The vampire yeah. cult, of course. <laughs> yeah. The logical. There, there's all this vampire stuff in the first book that doesn't go anywhere in the first book, but it leads to the climax of the second. So right. It seems like it's out of nowhere, but it actually does tie into the plot. Yeah, it's as it very goes on. strange to me that he published it as two books because it. Feels like it should just be one big it's book. It's one story. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't like if you read the second book, you'd be baffled about what was going on. I mean, it's and if a you and if you just read the first book, it just stops. Right, there's no ending. So, I guess it's a factor of serialization or something. Uh, but yeah, yeah, strange. it was serialized, but they were both published the same year. So I don't, I don't. Yeah, know. yeah. Well, I mean, so obviously he knew he was going to keep writing it. So yeah, well, that that yeah. might be a thing. It might just be like, oh, we only have the paper to. Yeah, publish. but you'd think subsequent editions would include both yeah i don't know yeah and it's very strange that they didn't you know when they translated it they didn't just do them both at once i mean maybe they did and i can't find it because no i looked for it like, pretty hard to too small company i i did as well maybe they did but it's not available anymore and the second book is the, definitely published independently as like a hardcover and you could buy it for a hundred dollars right the english translation yeah. so they're they're definitely treating it as two separate books uh, but the story doesn't play like two separate books at all. It's very no. strange. Um, I guess it's kind of a Tol J.R. Tolkien thing, uh, you know, like Lord of the Rings came out basically over the course of about 18 months, and they were technically three books, but he really intended it as one big novel. So, uh, Yeah, the, and this is just as influential as Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, well, he got he made his mark, but not through this book, of yeah, course. Yeah, Although, yeah. it, it um, needs to be said, I think Gaston Leroux, like to us, he's Phantom of the Opera guy, and that's it. Um, but I yeah. think in France, uh, he's he's actually somewhat well known, more well known in general. I think his work is yeah, his detective fiction is more known there. Yes. Yeah, I think there, there are adaptations of his um, of his characters and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, he also wrote one about a killer ape, uh, which I called Balaou. I haven't read that one yet, but uh, okay, that's available. Well, that sounds interesting. That seems like seems another... to be a riff on the murder of the. Uh, Murder murders at the Rue Morgue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And th there's another Auguste Dupin connection right there, obviously. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But anyway, he. So yes. So this uh, the, the the girl that uh, Benedict is is uh, hot for. Uh, she um, she she's taken in as kind of a ward. I was a little unclear as to the relationship and why she was there, other than just he, the guy was perving on a on a girl. But <laughs> you know, you know, that was a thing they did back in the day, and a, a rich old crazy person would say come to my mansion beautiful woman and <laughs> i'll act creepy for a while until something horrible happens yeah. um but he has a wife who is slowly dying and uh oh this is the vampire character right his name is um um the well, cult he's a marquee vampire I'm sorry. yeah marquee he's a the marquee uh culture Christos, Christos oh culture marquee de culture yeah yeah uh and his name is uh george marie vincent um and uh, he's um, – the, the name Marquis is probably a reference to the Marquis de Sade, 
Um, no, no, no. Mar- Marquis is a title in, in France. Yeah, it is, but it's probably a allusion to that. I don't know. Well, I think it's it's I think it's the equivalent of being a count or a, like a baron. Like it's yeah, small... yeah. I, I know. It's just I'm saying he's, him having that title is uh, okay. All right, fair enough. Uh, because they reference Sada to Sada, I think. It might also be, and I don't quite know French politics of this period, uh, because of course this is post-revolution, much post-revolution. It, that might be the highest sort of semi-aristocratic title in existence uh, post-revolution, <laughs> you know, because obviously they got rid of the monarchy and the nobility. Yeah. Uh, so it might just be that that's the, the highest rank you could have in France and, you know, mm-hmm. and still be alive at that point in history. Um, yeah, so his uh, um, his wife, the uh, Marchioness, uh, is um, constantly dying. You know, she's always anemic and... Um, you know, we know what's going on. Right. Well, she's... Uh, of co- and he's got portraits of all his ancestors who look exactly like him. Right. Uh, yeah, and so he's... he's um, he's Yeah, he's he's been... Not subtle about being, you know... Yeah. Well, to, that, and again, be- you, you kind of go, in 1923, was that weird? But in 1923, of course, they would have had Dracula, and they would have had all these other things. Yeah, yeah. So. It, w- it would have been a trope by... 19. 19- it was a trope by 1923. That had shown up in multiple books. Right. Um. Including Varney the Vampire, though it makes more sense, it makes less sense there. But anyway, right. well, that was the that was Since, the first one. Yeah, it? that turns out to actually have no connection to Varney. Yeah, just it is a coincidence that the guy in the portrait looked like him. Oh, anyway. really? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There was this was the beginning of the vampire trope, so they hadn't figured out all the tropes at that point. That yeah. Um, well, it was also a badly written book, but we'll <laughs> as we've established, we'll move on from Varney. Well, this is yes. a, this um, has a certain amount of randomness to it as well. This book, but yeah, uh, yeah. But uh, it turns out that uh, he's a member of a, a cult led by led by a woman named Dorga, who is some sort of avatar of Kali. Dorga, yeah. Uh, she's yeah, she's Dorga. Uh, she's from uh, India, and uh, he, the the vampire guy, the the marquis, has a. Um, Sort of cadre of um, of Indian friends, uh, Doctor Salib Khan, uh, Sangor, and Sing Sing, who I'm not sure is a human. I think he's a monkey because they refer to him as a monkey a few times, but he also might be a person. It's yeah, <laughs> it's a, that's a little strange. I think he's supposed. To, I mean, he talks, doesn't he? So no, uh, I don't know. Okay, not in English. Yeah, um, and again. This is know. in he, the the well translated book that we're still yeah. a little vague about this point, but it's a little it's it's a little confusing. Um, yeah, I thought he was supposed but, to be um, a servant, but anyway, I I don't know. I think he was, but they also refer to him as a monkey. But that might also be a racist insult. So yes, I don't it know. might. <laughs> it's not a great um, uh, depiction of Asian people in general. So there you oh go. nope. Um, though the connection with uh, vampirism and the and the um, the Orient, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, was um, a, a, an established thing by that point. Right. Um, that, uh, of course, uh, uh, Lord Byron discovered va- the myth of vampires when he was traveling in Turkey. So, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, they do link uh, the, it to the the thug, the thuggy, the thugs who were a historical yeah. uh, cult in India. That was def- and they did worship Kali and they did sacrifice people to Kali. That was. That was a real thing. Uh, so that's you know that's all it took to run off with, and therefore vampires. <laughs> yeah, um, though these aren't traditional vampires in any sense. No, uh, they uh, 
don't have fangs. I mean, vampires don't have fangs in folklore, but anyway. Um, by this point in pop culture, they had fangs. Uh, but these ones don't. They use uh, scientific means to drink blood. They have a, um, a sort of dart thing that uh, can bite from long distance, yeah. so to speak. Um, so... Um, it causes like it feels like a bee sting or something, and yeah, I think it, it's a it I think it's a blow up. dart that's supposed to be. Yeah, it's a blow dart, yeah. um, and uh, they use uh, chemicals to either clot the blood or cause it to flow faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, like artificial, like they pour it on and knock people out. I think they knock out Christine yeah. near the climax. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it needs to be said, um, this cult comes out of nowhere in the last 50 pages of the second book like we know i disagree that dorga's in there and I, it's sort of implied well, well, that it's a whole big like organized cult yes yeah. well yeah it's we know that the 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 marquee is up to something and he's you know he's vampire like or he, he is a vampire um and he has these servants who help him out and stuff like that so it's all kind of weird but it seems like it's just about him being a vampire, and then suddenly there's a whole cult. <laughs> so that does kind of, and it's funny because at that point in the second book they've been focusing on the doll, and you almost hadn't mentioned the marquee at that point. <laughs> it's like, hey, there was a vampire. I guess the story kind of forgot that there was a vampire in yeah. the story. But, oh, but he, there he, is. he is responsible for all the murders. So. Right, right. Well, like I say, because the second book is people and parts of the first book too are people just kind of sitting around trying to piece together what's going on various people there's a there's a uh, there is a uh there's a reporter detective character sorry a reporter i think he's a detective who wants to be a reporter if i've got this correct um and uh there he's kind of been following so he's one of the viewpoint characters second point but yeah so what happens is that um eventually they find um uh benedict um in like his old remote mysterious country house, uh, burning a body uh, while Christine is there as well and reviving her, but burning this other body. So he gets arrested, tried and, um, and executed via guillotine, this being France. And um, the interesting, and uh, of course that's not the end for him. Uh, her father, Christine's father and her, her, um, her uh, fiance. fiance, cousin and fiance, yeah, which is yeah. a thing. Yeah, that was the ni- that's the early nineteenth, early twentieth century for you. But yeah. Jacques uh, Jacques, uh, Content- Jacques Contentine, uh, her yeah. her uh, her fiance, and her father have both apparently collaborated. They've collaborated, right? It's both of them. Yeah, yeah they're they're both involved in uh, that. This is established in the first book. They're um they've been building a um. Uh, clockwork man, basically a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, though uh, we're not like privy to that necessarily, but we can figure it out through context clues. And yeah, the fact that that's the premise of the book. Yeah, Benedict <laughs> so sees I knew that going in. Benedict yeah. sees her like keeping a man in her closet at one point, and then eventually very a very handsome man. Yeah, named uh, dressed in old fashioned clothing and like a cape and stuff. Right. Um. And uh, at one point, the uh, the father, the watchmaker, says, uh, "You won't obey me anymore. This is your fault." And starts whacking him with a thing. And mm-hmm. uh, Benedict thinks that they've murdered him. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't see any blood. He doesn't see any blood, but he, he sort of figures they've they've cleaned it up somehow. But um, um, then he sees Gabriel out and about later on, so he's very confused by what's going on. Yeah. Um, 
it turns out that this is a they built this clockwork man it doesn't think at all it doesn't have any a bit you know like it just it winds up and does motions mm-hmm. um and um it looks exactly like a person from the outside but it um you know like the face is immobile it can't do anything mm-hmm. um its eyes are glassy you know yeah um and um uh yeah it seems that um uh christine has sort of crafted the face to match her ideal of beauty um and um at one point uh, benedict uh, makes overtures to her and she's obviously uh interested in him for his poetic mind and his you know um his his uh, soul and all that but finds him absolutely repulsive but she loves gabriel even though there's nothing in it right and so, of course, um, what's going to happen after Benedict gets uh, de- uh, decapitated, gets uh, execute, guillotined, uh, is that his brain gets put into the body of Gabriel. The, his name is Gabriel, by the way. Gabriel, the robot yeah. man, uh, the clock, the bloody doll of the title. And uh, yeah. so from then. Yeah, with um, uh, Jacques, uh, the fiance is a uh, medical student who's like a brilliant um and he creates an artificial nervous system that allows it to interact with the brain, right. the, the robot body. So that's why that works. Right. And the, and the watch, uh, watchmaker. Oh, and there's uh, radioactive fluid in it yeah. as well. Because wa- uh, once again, like we discussed in the Nictalope book, they thought radiation could do anything. It was yeah. basically magic at this point. Just like Stanley And Stan I guess Lee continued to into the 60s. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but Stanley's Stanley's magical radioactive MacGuffin. Um, at this point, I think uh, we should take a break for some uh, advertorial content. Uh, we'll be right back on What Mad Universe. Ellen, in 15 seconds, what is Nice Games Club? It's our game dev podcast. Steven, help! Game mechanics, accessibility, art and animation, level design, prototyping. Everything that goes into making video games. How's that, Mark? Nice. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get your podcasts or at nicegames.club. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO, Editor-in-Chief, over there at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to the ShackCast, the official Shack News podcast of Shack News, uh, over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. But the watch, yeah. the watchmaker, and he's obsessed with perpetual motion, and uh, Jacques is, perpe- is obsessed with like curing death, basically, and they kind of put together all their there are different ideas there to you know create something that's supposed to be immortal and godlike basically and then give it the brain of benedict masson um now uh yeah who they they believe is innocent just to be clear they're not taking um like um Jacques says he never even considered that benedict was guilty um which right there was a lot of evidence against him it turns out he wasn't but you know mm-hmm. Eh? Yeah. Um, well, okay. putting the brain of an accused serial killer in your um, in your robot. Uh, in your indestructible uh, killer robot, your you know super strong robot is uh, maybe not the best idea in the world. Everyone's always in favor of saving Hitler's brain, but when you put him in the <laughs> exactly. body of a robot shark, suddenly you've gone too far. But uh, it's yeah. actually um, what was happening. And also, like even though um, uh, Benedict did not commit the murders. He's still a stalker. Like he, he watches her, yeah, in her house. Well, you know, like well, it's creepy. They say at one point, like, don't trust these journals because they're. And I mean, I, of course, someone from the outside 
writing this after the fact would say that because, oh yeah, we think he's a murderer, even though these journals seem to exonerate him, but he, they're his journals. He could write whatever he wants. And he does at one point say, you know, um, something about like, uh, morality is for lesser minds or something like that. Like he, he seems yeah. to, when he thinks they've killed Gabriel, when he thinks Gabriel's a regular human and they've killed him, uh, he kind of goes, well, you know, they've following the, you know, all the the old Roman rule that you have the right to determine who lives or dies under your own. Anyway, it's very serial killing stuff. Yeah. Now she's hot, so she has the right to do it. <laughs> well, it's just actually, I think it's her dad. Yeah, who's yeah, giving I know the right to. But, um, but what's happening here is apparently, uh, right around the time this was written, there was a or a few years before. No, no, before. Uh, it was during World War One. Right. This happened. So yeah, this guy Henri Désiré Landru, uh, was a an existing serial killer. I guess you might not call him a serial killer in the classic sense because he killed for money. Uh, but still, he was he was clearly a a, a psycho, and uh, he uh, he had he had sort of seized the French imagination because he had. Uh, he had been tried and convicted, and um, in let me uh, let me quote from uh, the Google Book translation that I've got here. Uh, from this point onwards, it becomes clear that part of Leroux's intention with the bloody doll was to write a satirical comment on the case of the serial killer Henri Désiré Landru, the French Bluebeard, whose trial, though a mixture of politi- through a mixture of political intrigue and genuine public outrage, became notorious in France when it went to court in 1919. In brief summary, Landru took advantage of the chaos caused behind the line, but in France by the First World War, to charm his way into the confidences of a large number of recently bereaved widows and otherwise vulnerable women. He proceeded to rob them, murder them, and finally cremate them in a stove in a remote dwelling in the countryside outside Paris. No one ever really found out how many Landru killed on account of the burned remains being too difficult to identify. Like Benedict Masson in the passage above, he constantly disrupted his own trial by pleading his complete innocence, even though the police had already discovered charred human remains, items of clothing, and personal effects that were inextricably linked to several of his known victims in his possession. He was convicted of the murders of ten women and one young man and guillotined. So, yeah, this is very much uh, uh, LaRue going, you know, what if, uh, (laughs) you know... What if there was a vampire what? cult actually behind this? It was. It's the because equivalent there, of <laughs> there were there were various irregularities about the case. Like blood wasn't found at his at his resident residence, even though he would have chopped them up. Right. And so that's explained by you know vampires drank the blood. <laughs> well, it, and it's things like yeah, that. Yeah. It's the equivalent of sort of all the stories in which Jack the Ripper was an alien or whatever. It's you know it's yeah. basically that for a different well-known killer at, at the time and literally just a few years before too so it was yeah it was fresh on everyone's minds when he wrote that and uh, aspects like um landrew's um behavior at the case uh are directly paralleled in the book uh as you said he pleaded his innocence but he was also like sort of sarcastic about it yeah. snarky about it uh he would say you know it's not my job to to investigate crimes you do your job <laughs> yeah i'm innocent but it's not my job to prove it you it's your job you're the court uh yeah which is obviously in this case it's obviously uh you know he was obviously just doing it to be a because he was a narcissistic uh sociopath but um in the book it doesn't it doesn't quite jibe to me quite as well that he would do that although they have a stab- no because he's a different he's a different sort of character yeah um in the book Right. He's more of a creepy incel stalker guy. Who's, right. I don't know. <laughs> and, well, but but as we said, he does he do, he did make a big uh, assertion of how 
you know, superior who wasn't. He was. He's very arrogant. Yeah. He's, so there is that Once element. Again, incel. But if he's actually innocent, I feel like he could at least talk about what he saw, <laughs> and maybe it'll go somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But um. Anyway, and it and it is actually interesting because it's like again, you're you're basically writing this going. John Wayne Gacy is innocent. Here's what happened. It was vampires, you know, like John. Yeah, but it's also it's also sort of playing around with some ideas at the time, because apparently like this was a common punchline at the time because the case was so ridiculous. They sort of just had the public just sort of had to laugh at it. Okay. so like uh, there was there were rumors going around or like joking rumors that the government fabricated the whole thing to get people's minds off the way the peace treaty for World War One wasn't going very well for the French. (laughs) Um, and that okay. sort of thing. Like, well, that's the uh, logical know, way serious. to get people's minds off politics, of course, is to, uh, well, wait a minute. Actually, what am I saying? Yes, it is. Of course it is. People have done that in the past. We got, in, yeah. we got OJ Simpson distracted I mean, this isn't a serious thing that people put forward, but it's like, you know, th- this was jokes running around. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there have been multiple movies made about this guy, one with Peter Sellers, apparently. Um, and they're, they're com- dark comedies. So, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Okay, interesting. Not Peter Sellers, sorry. Um, Charlie Chaplin, black. Yeah, I was gonna say the timeline is a little weird if it was Peter yeah, Sellers. Yeah, sorry, but yeah, okay. Cha- I mean, Charlie I could, Chaplin. It could be. Hey, he's a historical figure, but yeah, I, I feels like he's not well known outside of France as well. But uh. yeah. Anyway, so uh, so in the second book, now it's suddenly the bloody dolls on a rampage. He's killing his. He's he kidnapped uh, Christine. Right, and he does kill people as the doll. Right, I'm not wrong yeah. about that and they're his i'm a little vague on why he was killing them uh it's his enemies like the, i think it was like a, a few of them were self-defense and some of them were enemies right i think yeah who this is gonna be a, a uh an episode where we're a little bit confused on what happened yeah for multiple reasons yeah well it's it's both the fact that we had a bad google translate of the second book and also it's written that unfortunately it's written in a way that that can be very effective i think of just kind of like everyone's tr- trying to piece together what happens and everyone's trying to you know yeah but it's, it makes it harder when you're not reading an actual right in you know yeah you're supposed to get translated. something that's a clear clue to something that's supposed to imply something but it doesn't come off as well instead of just flat out saying what happened essentially yeah um this is this is one of the more confusing Google Translate things I've gone through. So <laughs> usually it's a bit more clear what's going on plot-wise. Right. Not always, but usually. Yeah. And now it does need to be said, it, it's an interesting take, though, because everyone's, a, like, fairly quickly, well, not right away, but fairly quickly in the second book, people, th- that uh, newspaper report that we, we talked about at the beginning, um, is just like, oh, by the way, there's a killer android running around. Um, <laughs> and uh, everyone starts speculating about it and coming up with crazy theories. This is, again, tied into your whole, maybe it was something to distract the populace, I guess, <laughs> and, yeah. and all the crazy rumors that happened out of it. Although, of course, there was no killer android involved in the Landrew case <laughs> <laughs> that we know of. Um, that we know of. <laughs> yes. It is interesting, though, because, um, so, like, he's an automata, uh, which uh, or automaton rather, uh, and those—that's uh, a thing that had existed for like this idea of a clockwork wind-up mechanical guy um, that had existed for a long time. Like in real life, there were, you know, honestly going back to like ancient Greece, there were uh, there mm-hmm. seemed to have been things that that you know wind up uh, 
figures and statues, possibly even worshipped figures. Uh, just want to let the audience know that uh, we lost some audio there and we're trying to re-record this. So. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. There was a... Uh, uh, yeah, so there were automata going way back. There were, uh, you know, uh, 16th century Renaissance era automata, uh, you know, when the clock was introduced to Europe. And before that, I think it was uh, in the Islamic and, and Chinese worlds, there were uh, there were wind up devices. And of course, trying to imitate, you know, humans, even in simple toy like ways, but uh, they became more and more elaborate. There was a 17th century uh, device called the flute player, which apparently imitated a person who could play the flute and uh, played different songs if you wound it up. There was the famous Mechanical Turk, which was a fake, not a real thing, but um, it, uh, it, it was... It could supposedly play chess, but it was just a little person inside operating it. Right. It wasn't a... It was, that wasn't real, but it, there were enough things that were almost like that that people bought it, basically. Um, and then the... And, um, and there was an a early uh, German story from the early 1800s... Uh, uh, Der Sandman by E.T.A. Hoffman, which has one of the first automata uh, in the modern sense in fiction, a uh, a clockwork woman named um, Olympia, who was a wind-up mechanical uh, woman who was uh, designed to imitate a human human being, but she was slightly um, off to look at when she moved. She was, you know, surface-level beautiful, but... Uh, People found her repulsive when she moved, and that se- seemed to have uh, predicted the uncanny valley effect. Yeah, that's that's kind of cool. And um, but yeah, the, and then there was a so there was a guy called uh, uh, Eugene Vincent Robert Houdin, uh, who was a um, uh, sorry Jean Eugene Robert Houdin, who was a, a stage magician. Uh, he's the guy who uh, Howard, Harry Houdini took his, his stage name from later. Um, and, um, he used automata and stuff on stage. They were a big, a big, uh, a big thing with stage, stagecraft and, uh, and, and magicians, uh, Georges Milly, uh, who, uh, uh, who directed from the earth to the moon, the famous short with the, the, the rocket shooting into the moon's eye. Uh, and he was also, you know, he did stage magic and he built automatons and, um, as we see in the movie Hugo. Yes, exactly. That's a big thing in that movie. Yeah, yeah, and it was it's it's a clue. Uh and you know, and that is something that he actually did. That was not made up for the movie. Um anyway, so there yeah, the eighteen sixty to nineteen ten were known as the golden age of the automata. So that was a, a thing that was on everyone's minds. Um now we also mentioned that um, you know, uh if you go of course uh Frankenstein is you know, early 1800s, but um, the 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 play R U R, which we discussed in an earlier uh, an earlier episode, um, had only just come out when this hit, uh, and as a result, um, I think the idea of you know it's it's kind of ground zero for the idea of a rebellion of robots. Um, again, you know, Frankenstein exists, and they the, this book quite openly nods to Frankenstein in in multiple places. Um, but uh yeah it, it it's very interesting um because it it you can see that kind of specter haunting people this is where we started to really get robots and and androids and things in in sci-fi and and it it came out of RUR so this might be a fairly early uh interpretation of that i guess um but though again it's not a it's not an artificial intelligence it's a human being brain in a um robotic body so it 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and, and that's actually interesting because you go, you know, you look at Frankenstein, which came later, uh, the James, the movie version of Frankenstein, the James Whale Frankenstein. And it's, um, it's a, it, you know, they do the thing where, uh, the, the hunchback named Fritz, not Igor, um, finds his, uh, you know, he, he damages the brain he was supposed to use. So he swaps it out for a, a murderer's brain. And uh, that's supposedly an happy normal brain. <laughs> different, different movie, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it's, um, it's all Frankenstein. It's all yeah, it's all part of the same <laughs> series. It's all canon. Um, but um, actually, in my in my web comic uh, Apex Society, uh, I had a little bit which said his name was Igor Fritz. So sort of combining the different interpretations. Right. Uh, his name being Igor as an aside was. Um, uh, sort of a misunderstanding from the general public. It was Fritz in the original movie. In the third movie, it retconned that uh, Frankenstein's assistant was Igor, with a Y. Uh, he was played by Bela Lugosi, and he was not a hunchback in that one. His um, He was hanged after the Frankenstein thing, and uh, his neck was broken. So he sort of had a neck turned, you know, to the side. And... Um, uh, so that eventually merged with the hunchback Igor and yeah. became spell with an I. And by the time Young Frankenstein came out, that was a thing. Right. Yeah. It's 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 really weird. It was a, it's a whole Mandela effect. Yeah. Uh, we haven't discussed uh, Phantom of the Opera as much as I thought we would. Uh, I did. Um, yeah. The I mean the the initial parallels are are quite obvious. It's an ugly skull faced man. Uh, uh, Benedict is described as having a, a face like a skull at one point, um, and uh, as is the Phantom in the book. Um, and he's he's in love with it, and he's got like you know what we would in modern times call an incel attitude. Um, you know, I'm ugly, but I want this hot woman, and I just you know, um, she doesn't like me because I I have a weak chin, and um, but he, he feels entitled to in some way, but also there's a lot of self-loathing and it leads into this, um, dark attitude, um, that ends up leading to often murder. Um, and, uh, of course, a woman named Christine. Yeah. I don't know what that's about. Uh, I haven't been able to find any biographical information on, uh, LaRue implying that he knew somebody named Christine, but I mean, that's, that can't be. Well, I think it's as simple as the fact that it sounds like Christ and it makes her in, innocent and, and you know, and helpless and harmless. I guess, but Christine in this book isn't innocent. She's like, she's in love with, uh, she's sort of, I mean, she's, she's not a murderer or anything, but she, she's not like the, um, the type of character Christine Day and Venom of the Opera is where she's more of a true innocent. This one you know, she lusts after a robot and she, she doesn't want this guy because he's ugly, even though she likes his mind, you know, it's, I, I guess, I mean, it's, it's still, it's still a sort of damsel in distress kind of. Yeah, uh, but evocation. she's not as, she's not as pure as Christine Day is. I'm not sure, sure if she fits the Christ-like mold. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's, it's, yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's, I, I think it's less saying, oh yeah, she's a Christ figure, which she obviously isn't and more, uh, that she's just, you know, it's it's a, meant to evoke innocence and 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 you know, I don't know. I guess, but I I don't know. I, I 
I have a feeling there was a Christine in, in LaRue's life. <laughs> that is entirely possible, yes, that he had. Because uh, it, it's a very was... similar function within the story. She's a different type of character, but, like, she's being stalked by a weird incel. It's it's a thing. And, and <laughs> in which case, uh, uh, an author writing obsessively about a woman named Christine, uh, writing about how these other protagonists who are kind of monstrous are looking at her and, 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 and staring at her in, in, uh, with, with, uh, <laughs> with adoration, but they can never have her. That, that says a lot about potentially, uh, their state of mind, LaRue's state of mind too. If you yeah. Back that well. Um, now, um, Benedict is treated as a lot more sympathetically ultimately than Eric is. Um, and I think by this point, um, Phantomania had already started to take off and people were already um, sort of latched on to the... Because Eric isn't entirely unsympathetic, but he's still the villain of the book. Um, hmm. And he sort of redeems himself at the end by letting her go, or redeems himself in quotes, but by, from a narrative point of view. Um, he lets her go at the end because uh, um, he's finally sort of... Um, does a selfless act, basically, and that, that sort of... Um, uh, is what ultimately saves the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess people had already latched on to that um, right. aspect yeah, of the, the popularity character. Of, the popularity of the Phantom might also explain repeating some of the same yeah. <laughs> ideas and images as well. He's I would like, have changed like, the character's name, though. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I, I If knows? your most famous book has, you know, yeah. I'm just saying. Um, this is a different Sherlock Holmes I'm writing about now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the the original Phantom book's interesting in, in how it's uh, been sort of mined and adapted over the years. Because he's not as... Because by the Andrew Lloyd Webber version, he's like a sex god who's got like a slight <laughs> deformity under one half of his face. You know, it's yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's quite different from how he started out. He's, he's more of a... like. Um, there's a part where uh, the Persian, who's a major character in the book, who's left out of almost every adaptation for some reason. Uh, he's a character in the book named uh, the Persian. He's named that because uh, the author is trying not to reveal his identity because he's in bad with the Shah and he doesn't want to you know, reveal himself. Um, he's pretty much the protagonist of the second half of the book. And... Um, He's always replaced in adaptations, almost always, with um, some sort of, uh, like, it's um, Madame Giry in, in the um, uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber version, and uh, so on. Somebody who knows about the Phantom from the past, and knows some information about him, and can reveal to the heroes uh, to, that'll save them. Um, he uh, says at one point that Eric uh, basically... He's an adult man. He's about fifty by that point, but he has basically the the emotion, emotional depth of a child. Uh, he described that he's like he like plays with his enemies before he kills them, and um, he's very he has the cruelty of a child with the sort of uh, lusts of an adult man. Um, yeah, uh, similar to uh, how uh, Van Helsing describes Dracula at one point in the novel that he has a child's brain. Um, well, certainly, uh, the Phantom, from what I remember, is very. Uh, he's he throws temper tantrums and yeah, he, and he does. Very... That's definitely part of his character. He's a big drama queen, um, right? And and that's that actually comes across in this book as well. Not 
as much through the characters. Benedict not, is not quite as much that. I mean, it's it's his writings, but he's writing it in a book, so it's not quite as overwrought. But everything there's definitely a sense of overwroughtness to everything in the in, in yeah. This book. He definitely had liked um, at least from the two books of his I've read, Larue liked a sort of heightened reality. Um, yeah. Where um, because Phantom, nothing explicitly supernatural happens in it, but at the same time. The Phantom has glowing yellow eyes and he can see in the dark. You know, that's... And it's not explained. That's just a thing. Well, he wrote a lot of Nyctalope books, I guess. <laughs> well, Nyctal it predated Nyctalope, but yeah. Yeah, um, oh right, yes, yeah. Or no, I guess it would have been around the same time, 1907, 1908, yeah. Everyone was hung up on glowing eyes and seeing in the dark in France. Glowing-eyed Frenchmen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh... Yeah, he's yeah. No, you can see, and and he has a tendency. I don't. I, I maybe I shouldn't attribute this to Larue. Maybe it's something about the translation I read. But the way that characters will suddenly speak in italicized speech, based on nothing, as far as I can tell, and it'll yeah, be like yeah. I don't. I don't know if that's from the original. It's hard to tell. Well, it, but and yet it's in the translation, like the proper translation too, not just yeah. the Google Translate. Uh, it, it seems to be a thing where. Characters will suddenly. I mean, I mean, maybe it needs something something different in French than it would in English. And in English, it carries the connotation that people are suddenly getting very dramatic in their speech and they're saying something. Yeah, it's a very, <laughs> like I said, very heightened reality in both books. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, like, yeah. Again, the the Phantom. Um, like you said, it's a mystery novel. Basically, uh, we don't get the reveal of who the Phantom is till well into half, you know, well into the second half of the book. And there's all these, you know, mysteries about who the opera ghost could be, and there's red herrings and stuff uh, mm. set up, and um, it's very different from how we would receive it later, because we know, we all know, the Phantom's, you know, right. an ugly guy yeah. who lives in the basement. Uh, yeah, it's the same thing. Like that was that was common in late 19th, early 20th centuries. Like yeah, same with Jekyll issue. and Hyde. That was right. A, I was going to say Jekyll and Hyde until the end. That right, they were the same person. You're seeing it's basically a story of everyone putting the pieces together, but you, the modern reader, already knows what the big twist is going to be, so it can be a little bit draggy to you because you're like, "Get to the good part. We know what ha we we want to see all the cool stuff happening." Yeah, but but like, like I said, there's there's a um uh one of the red herrings is a character named the Rat Catcher who um um goes down in in the tunnels beneath the opera house and um uh catches rats and he shines a light in his face and it looks like he's a flaming skull um you know it's very sort of like i said weird heightened reality elements just sprinkled yeah. in that don't it's, actually even have to do with the main characters weirdness right. it's, it's multiple it, weird things happening at once yeah that seems to be a french i don't know i'm not going to attribute it like it's not like you have to be french to write weird stuff yeah but they, but they same, definitely like, like the their very had the, the first Nickelodeon book had a guy who can see in the dark, but also Martians exist. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, that, that's more in the classic pulp tradition. I would say almost they, they like pulps of all over the world would throw in crazy elements. It's like, Oh, we need this story to happen. Uh, they get abducted by aliens or so, you know, they yeah. throw in something crazy, but this, as you say, like LaRue and, and some of the other French stuff I've said, just they go in on the imagery and the dreamlike surrealism a little harder. Uh, than mm -hmm. a lot of people, um, than other, some of the other countries that I've seen. Yeah, um, uh, and I mean, surrealism is a thing that was popular in France, uh, I guess around this time, yeah. Um, yeah. I know uh, the Phantom Ah books were really popular with the surrealists right. because of his, his um, 
that he didn't really have a motive. He just did things for the sake of it. And it was sort of like the underlying psychological right. uh, re- revealing of the darkness in the human spirit and all that and how he was over the top and flamboyant about his killings. Yeah, um, and Phant- Phantom Oz is a good thing to bring up because uh, with both Phantom of the Opera and this book, uh, it shows how there was a b- lot more... Um, sympathy for the like the anti-hero type of character well i don't uh, know if phantom like phantom is a straight up villain I oh yeah, well yeah sure but he's also the main character effectively like it's it's yeah i guess i mean well like, I, i've the only same read way, the first one to be fair i've only read the first phantom on novel and there's like 40 yeah. of them so i, 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 I know he's i know he's got the police detective who's trying to drag him down but it's, Shoo, it, yeah. as, as with fu manchu you don't care about the police detective you care about yeah. the bad guy and they're really yeah the, one of the, the phantom of... sequels is called the adventures of juve and like really yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i'm out bye yeah don't care <laughs> no phantom Oz in it like it's about phantom Oz yeah. still but like you're you're really right <laughs> juve is the headline here <laughs> Like well, they made the him case. a bumbling guy in the in the sixties version. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you yeah you see this uh, in this book. You've got a villain, and then an even worse villain that that villain is trying to stop. And technically, the hero is Jacques, or maybe the reporter, but you don't care about them. <laughs> it's all yeah, about the, I guess. the the, the bloody doll yeah. stuff. But yeah, anyway. Uh, um, so yeah, it's not at all clear whether these vampires are actual vampires. Like, whether this guy's immortal or he's just a fraud. Um, mm-hmm. At least not clear in the version we read, so... Yeah. I don't know. Well, they, it I seemed, throw up my I, hands I, about I that. got the implication that they just had, you know, they had ancient secrets and chemicals, and it's... Because it's otherwise... And they keep talking about science in the book, and science is what's important, yeah. and it's all yeah, about... Yeah, the phrase, you know, um, uh, somebody shock, in shock yells, science in the service of vampirism? Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a quote. Yeah. Um, I think so, that's yeah, what's I did get being the, implied. I yeah. did get the feeling that they're not, you know, supernatural vampires. That they're just a weird cult that drinks blood. Yeah. Um, and has the secret I of could immortality. Be wrong. <laughs> and apparently can actually be immortal. Like they, this is apparently. I, I think it's well, but we've we know that he was, you know, the the marquis was hundreds of years old, right? Like that it was, was the he? same guy. Maybe he was just. I, uh, like maybe okay. fake the portraits. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's ambiguous. Although everyone seemed to, there's no given no reason to doubt that part. But I would interpret it as just like, oh yeah, vampires exist, but it's this cult that had a weird serum and drank blood and stuff and yeah, found the secret be. of mortality I... and doesn't have a supernatural origin. You know, like that's how I would take it personally. Okay. Anyway, but who? You're right. Who knows? It. I think even in a perfect translation, it would be very ambiguous as to what you yeah. were trying to read there. Well, I think we're winding down. We were Philip Rice, blind watchmaker extraordinaire, and Adam Prosser, brain transplant specialist. We want to thank, as always, our court reporter, the amazing wind-up producer, Alex Ross, and the self-playing hurdy-gurdy man, Jack Furick, for our theme song. What Mad Universe is a well-oiled machine, but you do have to put a coin in it once in a while, and to that end, we both have Patreons. The links are below, or if you're listening to this via iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the like, you can check them out at NeverSleepsNetwork slash series slash what-mad-universe, or just go to Patreon and search Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's. Subscribers get to listen to our show early, and also access to comics, illustrations, writings, and other arcane, fantastical devices. You can also find links on our website to our Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter feeds. 
but again, you can search for us there uh, at our Twitter feed of WMU Podcast. We'd love to hear from you with questions, comments, or suggestions for books to look at for the podcast. And in particular, if you like the show, please leave a review for us at iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. So until next time, adieu. Thank you.